Blog Talk Radio. From Live in the Balance, the nonprofit organization committed to advocating on behalf of behaviorally challenging kids and their caregivers. This is Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to Collaborative Problem Solving at School. I'm delighted that you were able to join in. This program airs live each Monday at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time during the school year. We explore a variety of topics aimed at helping you better understand and help challenging students and implement the collaborative problem solving approach in your classroom and your school. If you have a question or comment, call 646-727-2691. If you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. And now, let's talk about challenging kids and how we can help them. Well, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to Collaborative Problem Solving at School. I'm glad that you're with us. Um, We have a special program today because I'm uh, broadcasting live today from the Child Assessment Unit at Cambridge City Hospital in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Um, live because, uh, well, quite frankly, I have some meetings here this afternoon, but what a great place to do um, one of our collaborative problem-solving at school programs because um, in these halls, uh, under the leadership of um, a very brave and persuasive soul named uh, Kathy Regan, who's the nurse manager here, uh, they were able to uh, virtually eliminate the use of restraint and seclusion in their unit. Now, why would I be doing a program on reducing restraint and seclusion? Because um, there are some major initiatives uh, afoot. You may have read about some of them on the Lives in the Balance website, um, where people are trying to advocate for the dramatic reduction or elimination of restraint and seclusion procedures in our public schools. Now, this is something that's been going on on inpatient psychiatry units for quite some time, but uh, it has been high time for some time that we try to accomplish the exact same mission in uh, our schools, where there are still tons of restraints and seclusions being done, Um, and the vast majority of them, if not all of them, unnecessarily so. So I am delighted with the initiatives that are um, afoot in this country, Um, but I'm broadcasting today from a place that's actually done it. Now, this is not a public school, and sometimes uh, when I'm uh, talking about dramatically reducing or eliminating the use of restraint and seclusion procedures, and I talk about how they've done it in restrictive therapeutic facilities, Um, sometimes people in schools say, yeah, well, that's there. Uh, We can't do that in our facility. I couldn't disagree more. Quite frankly, many school programs, uh, especially therapeutic school programs, don't differ that dramatically from an inpatient psychiatry unit. And so um, I don't buy the we can't do it here part at all. 
And um, so, no, I'm not sitting in a school right now that has dramatically reduced or eliminated the use of restraint and seclusion. I'm sitting in an inpatient unit, but the time has come for us to apply the exact same strategies and model that got the job done on the inpatient unit I'm sitting in right this minute to what we need to be doing in our schools to make sure that it happens there as well. And, of course, the model is called collaborative problem-solving. And let me tell you this about the unit I'm sitting in right now. It wasn't easy. It took an enormous amount of courage. It took a tremendous amount of commitment, diligence, continuity. And yet um, they did it. And those ingredients are no different when you are uh, trying to accomplish the same mission in a school. Now, just for those of you who aren't uh, quite so familiar with the terminology I've used so far, uh, often in many facilities, um, if a kid loses control, uh, they will be secluded, meaning placed in a uh, often padded room, sometimes called a quiet room, sometimes called a timeout room, and they will be locked in that room until they calm down. That's called a locked door seclusion. A restraint, and some of these are more common on inpatient psychiatry units than in schools, but a restraint can be a physical restraint, and those are the ones that are common in schools, where adults are laying hands on the kid for the purpose of restraining him, usually onto the ground, sometimes up against a wall, for the purpose of... Um, well, helping him calm down. Uh, now, there's also something called a mechanical restraint. That's where you're basically strapping the kid into a straitjacket so that he becomes immobilized. And there's a chemical restraint, which is where you are uh, immobilizing the kid chemically through administering medications that usually act fairly quickly to um, sedate a kid so that he can't act up anymore. So now we have our terminology straight. Uh, in my experience in schools, it's locked door seclusion and um, physical restraint that are uh, the form of uh, seclusion and restraint that are most common. And here's the interesting thing about them. They are almost exclusively emergent interventions, meaning interventions that occur when we, well, when we don't have any other tools. But these are interventions that occur um, in the heat of the moment when a kid is already looking out of control. Hmm. Well, we got that part wrong. And this is why collaborative problem solving is effective at reducing restraint and seclusion. It's, quite frankly, even effective at reducing the use of timeout in somebody's household. You know, we do seclude kids sometimes, not, not based on the collaborative problem-solving approach, but according to uh, some other models, uh, it's a good idea to, at a, in a home, to lock a kid in his room um, if he's acting up. Um, and then uh, if he destroys his room, uh, to remove everything from his room so that there's nothing reinforcing, as they say, in his room. Well, uh, emergent intervention that occurs when a kid is out of control, if we rewind the tape on why he's out of control in the first place, what do we almost always find? 
an adult using Plan A. Re rewind the tape on the vast majority of timeouts that are given in somebody's household. You'll find an adult using Plan A. Rewind the tape on the vast majority of physical, mechanical, uh, chemical restraints that occur uh, in an inpatient psychiatry unit or another type of therapeutic facility. You'll find an adult using Plan A. Locked door seclusion. Rewind the tape. Plan A. Uh, once again, there's not that much difference between setting home, school, restrictive therapeutic facility and what sets in motion challenging episodes in a challenging kid. What sets in motion challenging episodes in challenging kids? Throwing plan A at a kid who doesn't have the skills to handle plan A. If he's behaviorally challenging, you will at that point set in motion a challenging episode, and you will at that moment feel justified in your use of timeout, locked door seclusion, physical, chemical, mechanical restraint. Do bad moments happen in schools? Yes. Are the vast majority of them highly predictable and can they therefore be dealt with outside the heat of the moment proactively so that we are planning our approach to solving the problems that are setting in motion the kids challenging episodes in the first place well now now you've got some of the ingredients of the collaborative problem solving approach we don't want to be, and by the way, if you hear voices in the background, it's because, um, well, there's kids on this unit. And if you hear yelling, it's enthusiasm, I assure you. Um, not yelling at kids, but um, engaging them. I'm listening closely now myself, that the likelihood of you hearing a kid being yelled at on this unit is slim and none. Yelling just sets in motion challenging episodes. Yelling is what adults often do when a kid has begun to spin out of control and maybe yelling himself, but that's always occurring in response to an adult doing plan A in the first place, and that almost always occurs when an adult is asking a kid, demanding that a kid exhibit skills that the kid is lacking. Is there a better way to do this? Well, I can tell you how they've done it here, and I'm just letting you know all of the ingredients that made it work here would be ingredients that would make it work in a school. Um, we do need leadership. We need leaders to lead. If we are truly going to take this seriously and we're truly going to prioritize treating the kids with social, emotional, and behavioral challenges in our midst in a way that is more humane, more compassionate, more productive, then we got to have leaders who are going to lead the charge. And on this unit, they had them. And in other units that have dramatically reduced their use of restraint and seclusion, they've had them too. We need to become proactive. We need to 
shift from our um, emergent interventions, which we seem to adore, to a more planned, proactive approach to things. We need to create communication mechanisms so that the left hand knows what the right hand is doing. As I've said perhaps on other programs, but as I've been saying in my talks lately, if the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing, if the teacher who's got the kid in seventh period doesn't know anything about what happened in sixth, if the teacher in first period doesn't know anything about what's going on in sixth or seventh, all that does is lend itself to a model of care called winging it. And let me assure you, challenging kids are not going to do better if the adults who are trying to help them are simply winging it, not going to get the job done, not going to get the job done for them, not going to make life better for their peers who might be scared of them, not going to get the job done for their teachers who have a curriculum to teach and want everybody to feel safe. Winging it doesn't get the job done. We're going to have to put our heads together and do this as a team, and we're going to need leaders to lead the team, and we're going to have to involve people in the effort who really want to make things better for challenging kids. But above all else, we need to make the effort proactive. We're, we're, we're going to establish a core group, what we might call a CPS team, to help us plan for this shift in lens and shift in culture that is needed to help challenging kids better than we do in whatever facility, schools included, in which they might end up. Restraint and seclusion procedures are most often, almost exclusively, by the way, acts of desperation. They're what we do emergently because of what we didn't do proactively. What are you doing proactively? You are engaging people in a discussion using this discussion guide that I've created called the Assessment of Lagging Skills and Unsolved Problems. First, you're helping people figure out what skills a kid is lacking so that they have the right lenses on. And no, this is not a perfunctory activity. This is actually engaging people in a discussion so that they're actually thinking about this kid and viewing him through the prism of lagging skills. And I've been, as I've been saying in my talks lately, what you're hoping for here are wow moments, moments where people say to themselves, or out loud, even better, wow, he really is lacking a lot of skills. Wow. No wonder what we've been doing to him hadn't been working. Wow. Kind of feeling badly about what I've been doing to him. I did a talk yesterday at a conference uh, in Massachusetts where um, uh, it was at a religious institution where they pulled out the um, do unto others mantra. Do unto others as you'd want others to do unto you. And um, I told the folks who were at this conference yesterday that um, do unto others has great relevance to how we handle challenging kids. 
of course, you've got to be viewing them through the lens of lagging skills, not manipulative, attention-seeking, coercive, unmotivated limit testing. Boy, if you think a kid is those things, you may actually feel like pinning him to the ground or locking him in a padded room is exactly the thing to be doing. But if you understand instead that this kid is lacking skills, that challenging behavior is a form of developmental delay, well, now you have much more compassionate lenses on, number one. And, and now that you have those more compassionate lenses on, you're in a position to ask yourself the following question. If I was lacking skills and I was living in a world that was demanding those skills and that caused me to lose control of myself sometimes, how would I hope people treated me? Would I hope that... Uh, people would sit on me when I lost control or lock me in a room. Both of those interventions aimed at helping me regain control. i got to tell you, back in the day, before I knew better, when I worked on an inpatient psychiatry unit and I was actually one of those people sitting on kids, I, I do remember thinking to myself a few important things like, um, why am I doing this? This is making me, as the staff member, less safe, not more safe Plus, I'm sitting on the same kids every day. This doesn't seem to be working. Plus, is this what I'd want somebody doing to me? If I was having trouble controlling myself? You need those compassionate lenses to start asking yourself those questions. The lenses probably need to come first probably got to recognize this kid's lacking crucial cognitive skills, and then um, then you're going to identify this kid's unsolved problems. Under what specific conditions, over what unsolved problems, is this, is this kid getting upset, sometimes to the point that we are laying hands on him or locking him in a padded room? What are the conditions that set that in motion? What are these specific unsolved problems that he's having trouble solving on his own? Of course he's having trouble solving them on his own. If he could solve them on his own, he would, because kids do well if they can. Now that we've un identified his unsolved problems, and now that we have the right lenses on, we're starting to recognize that what we're doing sitting on kids, locking them in a padded room, having great faith in our system of reward and punishment, which is, of course, simply plan A with consequences attached, adult-imposed consequences. Now that we realize all that, what should we be doing instead? Well, what we should be doing instead is getting together with this kid proactively to start solving the problems that are setting in motion his challenging episodes in the first place, with some of those episodes being the times when we see him getting so out of control that we feel justified in pinning him to the ground or locking him in a room. Oh, by the way, one other thing I used to think when I would sit on kids. <laughs> this, is, this is crucial. What's one other thing I would think as I was sitting on kids? I would think this isn't calming him down. Sort of a crucial realization to come to as you're busy sitting on a kid. It's not calming him down. It's making him worse. 
why would we want to do something that's going to make the kid worse? We wouldn't want to do anything that's going to make the kid worse. We certainly wouldn't want to do anything that's going to make the kid worse if it's not going to, at some point, make him better. So we're organizing the effort. We are putting our heads together as a staff, and we are getting the right lenses on and identifying the specific lagging skills that are coming into play for a specific challenging kid. And then we're identifying the specific unsolved problems that are setting in motion challenging episodes in that kid. And then we are getting together with him proactively to solve those problems collaboratively. Now here's the hard part. If you're just beginning to do this, people aren't great at plan B yet, and there's a learning curve. Because adults aren't great at plan B yet, when they're first starting to do it, they're not getting problems solved so quickly. And now they know they ought not be doing plan A, and now they're crystal clear on why they shouldn't be pinning this kid to the ground or locking him in a padded room. Now they know. But the problems aren't getting solved so quickly, and so we might call that the hump. The hump each place needs to get over so as to get this job done. It's not going to be easy. Like I said earlier, it's going to require bravery, persistence, continuity, leadership, keeping our eye on the ball. Let's not forget why we're doing this. We're doing this because there's a more humane, effective, productive way to help challenging kids than by sitting on them and pinning them to the ground and locking them in a padded room. There is a better way. And while it may take us a little while to get better at that better way, once we're good at it, and it's not going to take forever, once we're good at it, the unsolved problems are getting solved. The challenging episodes are being reduced. And because of that, the temptation to lay hands on a kid, to lock him in a padded room, is starting to disappear. That's how they did it here at the Child Assessment Unit. And believe you me, there were times when it was ugly and hard and painful. And people wanted to throw in the towel. But they didn't. Because they knew they didn't want to be laying hands on anymore. And they knew that what it was going to take to not lay hands on was getting better at a different way. And quite frankly, lots of what I've just described is hard. Getting people together to organize the effort is hard. Getting good at plan B is hard. And yet we really have no choice because we can't keep treating kids this way. This is, after all, the year 2010. 
we are now the beneficiaries of 30, 40, 50 years of research telling us why challenging kids are challenging. Lagging skills. Challenging kids are challenging because they're lacking the skills not to be challenging. And we also now in the year 2010 know that laying hands on a kid or locking him in a padded room or pinning him to the ground isn't therapeutic. Some people used to call that a therapeutic hold. I consider that a contradiction in terms. Those two words don't go together. There's no such thing. Many people justify their use of hands-on procedures by saying that they have to keep people safe. You keep people safe by figuring out what skills a kid is lacking, making sure you have the right lenses on, identifying each child's specific unsolved problems, deciding which two or three you're going to start working on first, start solving them, then solve the rest. Here's the interesting thing. Whenever collaborative problem solving is implemented in a restrictive therapeutic facility, collaborative problem solving does have a reputation for dramatically reducing or eliminating the use of restraint and seclusion. But I think collaborative problem solving is just good care. And I think the use of restraint and seclusion procedures is not good care. And I think when you're implementing good care, a natural outgrowth of that, a byproduct of that, is that you're not laying hands on kids anymore. The ingredients are no different in someone's household. The ingredients are no different in someone's school classroom. But we've got to be committed to this, because if we're not, when it gets hard, we'll throw in the towel. And when we throw in the towel, all we have left is what we always did. And that's why we started trying to do something new in the first place. So I guess my opinion is there's no going back. There's just muddling our way through until we get good at this stuff and until we're not laying hands on kids anymore. Um, I sure would love to hear from folks in schools who have either been doing lots of hands-on procedures and wish they weren't, or used to and aren't anymore. And I'd like to, if you're not doing them anymore, I'd like to feature you on the Lives in the Balance website so then other people can learn from the journey you took and recognize how hard it was. And it is hard. I don't know any place that undertakes this journey without it being hard. But um, one of the things we're going to be doing on the Lives in the Balance website moving forward, and if you haven't been on the Lives in the Balance website lately, um, well, there have been some changes lately, but nothing compared to what's coming. Nothing compared. But I sure would like to hear from you, either by email um, or by phone, and let me know what you've been trying to do in your facility, in your school especially, to start 
treating the challenging kids in your midst without using hands-on procedures or padded rooms. There's no such thing as a therapeutic hold. And there's no turning back now. We've learned too much about challenging kids. We know there's a better way. The work is hard. Let's get this show on the road. Well, we do have time for a few uh, questions that have come in. Um, and boy, am I getting a lot of questions these days. But I do have a, uh email from one of our listeners. Uh, Restraint and seclusion hasn't gotten the job done. The conventional, wiz- the conventional way is broken. We're losing so many children in school due to these archaic interventions. Couldn't have said it better myself. Let's turn to some emails. Um, here's one that's actually kind of uh, consistent with what we've been talking about today, but it's from a... Um, Actually, you know what? I want to do one here from an educator because um, that's what I want to do today. Um, Hold on just one second. Here's the one I wanted to talk about today. Just a second. I'm pulling it up. Well, at least I thought I was pulling it up. Here we go. Hello. I am writing IEPs for the students in my behavior class. I love your stuff and I want to use your language in my goal writing and strategies. I was wondering if there is already some lagging skills rewritten as IEP goals with ways of teaching the student new skills. Where does someone start to teach cognitive flexibility? Is there a hierarchy of interventions that I do not know about? Well, now that's a two-part question. I'm going to answer the two different questions that are being asked here. Um, First of all, thank you for your question, and thank you for your enthusiasm for the CPS model. Um, Very soon, I'll be posting a sample IEP on the Lives in the Balance website, written with goals that are consistent with collaborative problem solving. And I'm I'm borrowing this from some folks in a school that I work with, but uh, A sample IEP written with collaborative problem-solving goals will be uh, posted soon in the paperwork section of the Lives in the Balance website. Um, Giving you examples, and and here's the cool part. Um, Truth is, I think uh, that if you fill out the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems, your IEP is largely written. I think if you fill out... If you engage people in a discussion using the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems, your uh, functional behavior assessment is largely written. Your behavior plan is written. I just wouldn't call it a behavior plan. I'd call it a problem-solving plan. Behavior plans make us focus on behavior. But behavior is just what the kid is doing when he has problems he's having difficulty solving and skills he's lacking. Behavior is not the focus. I wouldn't call it a behavior plan. What we ought to be doing with the kid is solving problems with him. I'd call it a problem-solving plan. And uh, if you have to do a functional behavior assessment, don't use the definition of function that the behavior is working for the kid. It's too narrow. Maybe it's working for him in some way, but the main function of challenging behavior is 
it's the way that we do have some crazy staff members on this unit who are very kid-friendly. If you hear people singing in the background, it's because, um, well, we got some staff members who uh, love kids and are uh, great with them. You may hear some kids singing in the background, too. Um, use the second definition of function. What, what's the true function of a challenging behavior? Simply that it communicates to us that the kid is having difficulty responding to unsolved problems in a more adaptive fashion than he is. If he could respond in a more adaptive fashion, he would respond in a more adaptive fashion. Kids do well if they can. So yes, we'll probably still have to be writing those FBAs, and we'll probably still have to be writing IEPs, but if you engage the people who are interacting with the kid in your building, in a discussion using the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems, I'll repeat myself, your IEP has largely been written. The skills that you've decided to target, those could be your goals. The unsolved problems that you've decided to target, those could be your goals. And I guess here's the only thing I might say. If you're thinking that you want an, a problem solved 80% of the way, I'd say you're aiming too low. You want problems solved all the way. I'll be posting the sample IEP on the I8 Lives in the Balance website as soon as I can. But now the other part of the question. Uh, are there? How do you start teaching cognitive flexibility? Is there a hierarchy of interventions that I do not know about? Well, um, this comes up frequently. The vast majority of skills that the kid is lacking are not going to be taught directly. They're going to be taught indirectly by engaging the kid in solving problems collaboratively. Many, many skills are being taught by engaging a kid in the collaborative resolution of a problem. First of all, in the empathy step, finally, at long last, we, the adults, are being specific about what the kid's concerns, the, the unsolved problems are. In the empathy step, we're getting great information and explicit information from the kid about what his concerns are about that unsolved problem. He's articulating his concerns. We're helping him get organized about the things that need to be worked on so that he doesn't exhibit challenging behavior anymore. By engaging him in discussions proactively, we are helping him suspend his emotional response to the unsolved problem and actually give it some thought so that it can be resolved, but we're doing all of that proactively. We're in the define the problem step helping him listen to another person's concerns, take another person's concerns into account without getting upset. In the invitation, we're helping him move off of his original solution, helping him take another person's perspective, helping him appreciate, oh, this might be the define the problem step instead, it doesn't really matter, take another person's concerns into account, take another person's perspective into account. My goodness. Empathize. A lot of skills are being taught indirectly just by engaging the child in plan B. 
Let me ask you something. You teaching a kid anything by pinning him to the ground? By locking him in a padded room? Any skills being taught now? Like I said, there's no turning back. We know too much about why challenging kids are challenging and what they need from us to have any faith whatsoever in adult-imposed consequences, including the adult-imposed consequences of laying hands on and locking a kid in a padded room. We know too much. There's no turning back. So to our uh, emailer, there's no hierarchy of interventions. The vast majority of lagging skills you are checking off in the lagging skill section are going to be taught indirectly by engaging the child in proactive, collaborative problem-solving. Is the kid picking up any new skills when you're doing plan A? No, plan A simply teaches him that you think you already know what his concerns are or you don't care about them. You're prioritizing your concerns in plan A. And the only person who's demonstrating any problem-solving skills in plan A is the person who's imposing their solution. But are they really demonstrating skills if they are imposing solutions? Or are they simply showing that through sheer force of their will, they're going to get you to do what they want you to do? There are some skills that would need to be taught more directly, sometimes language processing skills, some social skills, skills that wouldn't be taught by mere virtue of doing plan B. But that's not the vast majority of skills. The vast majority of skills are going to be taught by doing plan B proactively and solving problems collaboratively. Let's see if I can find another um, email to answer here. Um, I saw this article in Education Week called uh, Managing October Exhaustion. It's a, uh, I'm trying to find it here in my uh, browser. Let me um, see where I saw this. Just a second here. Bear with me. I apologize. Um, I'm usually a little bit better prepared with these things, but... Um, I'm uh, away from my normal venue today. Let's see if we have any... Uh, nope. Uh, Managing October Exhaustion. This is an article in Education Week that tells about, you know, a lot of people start the school year with um, uh, great enthusiasm and great energy. And um, then the energy starts to wane as they uh, recognize who their group is this year. Here it is. Um, And recognize uh, there's another eight months left. Um, This is an article that is from the recent edition of Teacher Magazine, Managing October Exhaustion. Um, 
I've got my own ideas about how to manage October exhaustion. Um, first of all, uh, if you're in a classroom, you are in an exhausting profession. Um, here's some of the suggestions from the article, and I, I like all of these. None of these are necessarily collaborative problem solving, but um, this is an article by uh, Elena Aguilar. Thank you. Uh, in it, she tells us that fatigue makes cowards of us all, and she uh, advises that people establish a pause period to rejuvenate, reflect, and reconnect. And there are four components of doing that. First of all, take some time off. Refresh your surroundings. In other words, find another day's worth of time to clean and organize your classroom. Reground yourself in the why. Why are you doing this? Now, of course, collaborative problem solving has a different why. I like that one. Um, I hope the answer to why did you become a teacher, I hope included in that answer is to um, help kids. Celebrate the successes. I love that idea. Um, good reason to save your Plan B flowcharts because sometimes you forget how successful you've been, but if you um, save your Plan B flowcharts, you'll have a running record of all the problems you've solved so far. Um, make good health a priority. These are all great, but what the research tells us is that... Um, the research tells us that perhaps the most exhausting thing that goes on during a school year, and one of the reasons that people are exhausted by October, is the kids with social, emotional, and behavioral challenges in the classroom. You want some exhausting? That's exhausting. Um, my answer to exhausting, well, one of the reasons that the kids with social, emotional, behavioral challenge is perhaps the main reason that they're exhausting, aside from the fact that they're exhausting to begin with, is that the way we're handling them either doesn't address their difficulties well or makes them worse, thereby sometimes causing us to feel justified in our use of I'm just sticking with the theme of the show, I apologize, in our use of hands-on procedures and padded rooms. Um, there's only one way to be less exhausted with the kids with social and behavioral, emotional and behavioral challenges in our classrooms. The way to be less exhausted, not, not dismissing any of the suggestions in the article because they're all great, but if you really want to be less exhausted and set the stage to stay less exhausted. Oh, no, I'm not going to repeat myself, am I? Yes, I am. Engage people in a discussion using the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. Identify the lagging skills of each exhausting kid in the classroom so that you've got the right lenses on and you've come to see the kid through the prism of lagging skills. Identify the specific conditions in which the kid is exhibiting his challenging and behavior. Pick two or three that you're going to be working on first. Table the rest. That's plan C. And start solving problems. There are lots of things we could do that are not that that would simply keep us exhausted. 
but you solve the unsolved problems of the challenging kids in your midst and at least indirectly teach them the skills they're lacking, you're going to be exhausted because you're in an exhausting profession. But you're not going to be that exhausted about this kid anymore because you got the job done. All right. We're out of time for the day. Um, I hope this has been informative. I hope it's been helpful. As always, I have to apologize. We are not having a program next week because I will be out of town. I promise this is the last Monday that we're going to be missing this program. I'm very sorry that my schedule sometimes gets in the way, but I'll be back in two weeks, and we'll pick it up right where we left off. Talk to you then.